right here is where my 900 year old friend Frode is. So of course you're feeling that just that sensation that you're describing, Sarah, that's because Frode is right here. spooky stuff but not today although i guess the ecological apocalypse is terrifying we've covered that (laughs) just the condition (laughs) of what the earth is uh is pretty scary and we've covered that often um on today's episode it's super special um similar to what we did with take back the night we are talking to creator of a really interesting film uh it's a little outside of what we're usually covering but it was just super interesting to me um especially after we covered in January or February when we did um, Tigers Are Not Afraid and they had that blend of magical mm-hmm. realism uh, and just kind of that exploration of like what is real to people that I found very fascinating and so this documentary really <laughs> captivated me. So uh, we are going to be talking about the seer and the unseen and we have invited the director and creator of this program to talk with us about it, Sarah Dosa. Hi. 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 Thanks so much for having me. Yes. Welcome. (laughs) Yes. Welcome to our show. We're super excited. Um, Kat, will you tell us what uh, The Seer Unseen is about so we can dive in? Yeah. uh, The Seer and the Unseen is a magical realist documentary about invisible elves, financial collapse, and the surprising power of belief told through the story of an Icelandic woman, a real-life Lorax, who speaks on behalf of nature under threat. Through her story, Seer explores the surprising power of belief in the invisible forces, be they the elves or the market, that shape our visible world and transform our natural landscapes. Thank you, Kat. That was wonderful. (laughs) And we are joined by Sarah Dessa, who is a documentarian whose interests lie in telling character-driven stories about the human relationship to ecology and economy. Um, And a lot of people don't put those things together, but they actually are pretty natural. Like there was a lot of questions that came up when I was just like watching just about like humans in general of like, you know, why we choose to believe one thing over something else uh, and really like questioning, (laughs) you know, what it is. Um, And on our show, uh, we are often trying to find this like through line between the two narratives or what is perceived to be two different worlds in media. So specifically horror media um, is what we're usually in. Um, So we talk about like the real world issues and then like the film, like and how well it might be telling that story. Um, And we do occasionally take a step back to kind of talk about, you know, a broader image and uh, how media itself can be used to tell like those two stories. Um, And I feel like your film really weaves like magical realism with like the the elves uh and then also like incredible reality with like the financial collapse that's told in there in such a a fluid way uh that allows for people to ask those questions of like 
why do we believe one thing and not the other? <laughs> and, um, in your previous documentary, the last season, uh, you were telling the story of the trauma of war and using that and the experiences of those soldiers who then turned to wild mushroom hunters. So very peculiar, unique story that just absolutely fascinate me. So thank you for, <laughs> for coming in here to talk to us about it. Um, and I, I just to kind of start it off is just uh, what draws you to these specific stories? Like what intrigues you to like, like, all right, I'm going to embark on the journey that is creating a documentary about this very like niche topic uh, for, for however long it takes. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, first, just thanks again so much for having me here. It's, it's a joy to speak with you both. Um, I, I think for me, these kind of niche topics, um, they spark delight in my mind. Um, uh, but for me, kind of a, as a filmmaker, um, I gravitate towards uh, not just stories about the human relationship to the natural world, as you know, you mentioned earlier, Gabe, um, but uh, I look for symbolism. Um, that to me, uh, I'm endlessly fascinated by how humans make meaning and where we derive um, symbolism. Um, and for uh, in my film, The Last Season, which is about these mushroom hunters, um, uh, it really focuses on the story of these two veterans, one who is a sniper in the Vietnam War and um, a man um, who was born in Cambodia who was a Khmer freedom fighter um, who fought against the Khmer Rouge and their lives intersect in the middle of the Oregon woods in search of this obscure, uh, this very rare mushroom called the Matsutake mushroom that in the early 90s fetched hundreds of dollars um, per pound um, wow. and the mushroom trade. Um, but I, I was really excited uh, because um, they, they had such a powerful story of friendship and family and, and healing, um, uh, uh, which is, is kind of what the film's about, but they were in search of this mushroom uh, that um, grows underground. Uh, it, it's connected to the roots, the, the roots of the mushroom, also known as mycelia, uh, connect up with the roots of pine trees um, and they have a symbiotic relationship. And I was just, kind of odd by the fact that here was a story of these two men that on the surface um, didn't seem to have much in common, yet it turned out underneath they both shared this deep trauma, yet um, desire to heal and form family uh, that you didn't quite see. And so kind of the fact that they're in search of this mushroom that had this whole story with it about connection and regeneration to me that just felt really powerful so I, I love those kinds of stories that feel kind of multivalent you know in a mm -hmm. way and the seer and the unseen very different a story <laughs> in Iceland about elves and you know uh, financial capitalism but to me I, I kind of understood Raka's um our protagonist Raka our, our elf whisperer um I understood kind of her her journey to protect this lava field where elves live um uh, I, I thought it invited kind of like a, a it became like an allegory for kind of these understanding these wider stories of um, of what we believe in. And if you unpack really what happened in Iceland um, prior to 2008, when their entire economy just completely imploded due to this banking fiasco, um, when you actually yes. unpack what happened there, it's 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 absurd. <laughs> like it's yeah. really absurd. Um, and the, the language that people use was this language of magic of people getting rich overnight, money seeming mm -hmm. to appear out of thin air. Um, it wasn't, it was economists and common people kind of using this language all at once. And so to me, it's, it's interesting that something that seems as kind of normal, mundane every day as money can be just as magical as this world of elves. Um, 
So uh, yeah, so all to say, I get really excited about those symbols and those kinds of plays with meaning. Um, and um, yeah, but it, but it all comes down to the people of the film. And I feel so lucky that in Raqqa, we found a phenomenal and inspiring storyteller. And in the last yeah. season, my two protagonists in that film too were just such fascinating, strong, hilarious, uh, wonderful humans <laughs> who luckily invited me into their lives. So. Yeah, yeah. And to be so comfortable too. And I get it. <laughs> like I feel like I'll tell you my whole story too. Um <laughs> when we were watching Cat had like similar thoughts to what you were saying regarding money and just like the wealth like the not the wealth, but the the power that we put behind what is honestly just an idea. <laughs> it's just like mm -hmm. what other people tell us to believe in. And it really is not anything. Um, Kat, did you want to expand on that? Yeah, I, I literally wrote down quotes that I really just enjoyed from uh, Rafa. Uh, specifically, she says, what even is money? Like, I think it's more invisible than our elf world. And that really stood out to me. And as well as uh, it's like the humans created a monster, which we have to feed, but is never full. Um, and I think that's like really interesting in even connecting like the mythical end uh, to this very like arguably money doesn't actually exist. So I guess not a real, real thing, but um, yeah, I just find it really fascinating the buildup there. And I guess like, do you think believing in the stock market or the invisible hand is as mythical or faith-based as they say, or do you believe in the hidden people? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, great questions. Um, I mean, um, where to start? I feel like I could write uh, and read all kinds of books and, and graduate school theses on exactly those questions. Um, I'll start with the, the hidden people um, question. I've got to say, I entered this project, my, my background is in cultural anthropology, and I kind of went into this project thinking like, this is the belief in elves in Iceland is a cultural belief over half the country believes in them, I'm going to respect this belief and, and understand it, not criticize it um, by any means, but really like do my best to to um, kind of immerse myself in this cultural reality and have empathy for it. But it was not a belief that was my own. Um, so um, that's kind of how I entered Iceland. Uh, once I got there, I, I've got to say I had experiences in nature that I um, couldn't explain in a language aside from the language of elves and hold folk. Um, I felt a sense of presence and power in places where Raka said, you know, right here is where my 900 year old friend Frode is. So of course you're feeling that just that sensation that you're describing, Sarah, that's because Frode's right here. Like she had, there, there was very specific reasons for kind of what I was experiencing. Um, it was like, it was an awe um, that I, I truly brought to your, like my, my first trip to Iceland, the majesty of the landscape was so powerful that I truly, I had tears in my eyes. Um, it felt spiritual. Um, and so I could really kind of understand that language of spirits of nature in a way that um, I just hadn't personally experienced before. So gotta say, I, I began to believe. <laughs> <laughs> so and Rocket too, it's just, um, uh, she, she so wonderfully always talks about how 
um, you know, to suspend kind of the, the critical adult voice, so to speak, and allow your inner child to come out to play is, is her language. And, and she often says, even if you don't like know 100% if you believe or not, life can be a little bit more fun if you believe elves, elves are present. Um, yes. Or if you think there's, you know, there's life inside a rock. It's not just a boulder. It's, it's a whole community. Things like that have really um, shaped my relationship to, to nature, actually. Um, so much so that, uh, yeah, um, no, I, I have lots of stories, but, but it's been a real powerful <laughs> transformation in my life to kind of really embrace this belief and weave it into my everyday. So it's my long way of saying, like, yes, I, I'm, I believe, <laughs> I'm a proud believer. <laughs> um, in terms of the, your question about the invisible hand, can, what was, can you tell me your question one more time of, if I, about that? Yeah. I believe it was, uh, do you believe uh, in the stock market and is as mystical, mythical or faith-based as, as uh, Rafa said? Um, I, I believe that belief and, and this, the powerful idea of shared value lay at the heart of, of a marketplace, um, of the stock market uh, and what drives capitalism. Um and I think it's incredibly complex. Uh, there's so many people, uh, so many forces that um, that play in. That, so I don't want to make it equivalent to the belief of elves by any means. But I do mm. think that if you can take some specific stories, for example, the story of Iceland, where um, there were these speculative bubbles, where um, uh, bankers and economists were essentially... Um, uh, placing value um, on assets that didn't quite exist and speculating <laughs> yeah. off of that spe on speculation. <laughs> um, so it's basically, if, if you imagine a bunch of IOUs stacking up um, one on top of each other and that being kind of given as actual money, but it's it's all borrowed, um, mm -hmm. that doesn't quite exist. There's an economic logic behind it. Uh, uh, but there's nothing actually tangible. And once that money, like in Iceland, what happened was um, all, all these debts got recalled and, and there was nothing to, to ground it. And so the economy completely collapsed. Um, I think stories like that really do expose how um, how belief and uh, kind of the basis of capitalism in speculation um, uh, can be exposed as mm -hmm. a construction of human, um, it's a cultural construction, um, of course, mm -hmm. that has tremendous power and has very concrete effects on our daily life. Um, but at, a, at its core, it does come down to what we believe and what we're told to believe. And when you're in a position of power, like in the Icelandic government, these Icelandic bankers that held such power, um, you you're taught to trust it you're taught taught mm -hmm. to trust in those authorities and so when when you feel lied to it, it's all it makes for all the more of a chaotic and heartbreaking situation yeah yeah, yeah. it's like and it's very sensitive the same as like you know kind of admitting that you believe in elves right it's like a sensitive thing um i was really fascinated by how um others believed in in the elves as well like even those who hadn't like seen them they knew someone who had or uh how it also like so easily like merged like the ecological like activists mm -hmm. with like being like okay we have a 
our same issue. It's just like we have two sides to this. And um, like, I really appreciated hearing about the beliefs because it, it had me thinking of like native peoples mm -hmm. in America or even like Afro Taino in like Mexico or like Puerto Rico. Like mm -hmm. there is a love, appreciation and respect mm -hmm. for the earth. Right. And I, it really made me like upset about just like modern way of living. Um, and there's some quotes in there uh, kind of like, about us leaving behind uh, mm -hmm. what those beliefs were. Um, and you've like already kind of talked about like, you know, your transition in, into belief as well. Uh, so I was, I was like, oh my God, this is great. Um, <laughs> but do you think uh, that similar to how like, Brecca was able to like collaborate with these activists who mm -hmm. might not, like some of them might not even believe and at, mm -hmm. at some points even like, kind of said she might like she felt like she might be like a traitor because yeah. she was able to work with mm -hmm. um, them to move the chapel so do you think that maybe certain activists might be like would it would benefit them to collaborate with maybe certain beliefs like that are you know tied in interest <laughs> in order to kind of like bring home like get more people behind it. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a great question. Um, you're right. Raka did, um, she encountered some criticism because she was talking to the authorities. Um, uh, some people in Iceland thought that, um, that, so, so I should say that this, the story of, of the road, um, oops, Yes, um, uh, got picked up by international media and it was told as a story of, you know, elf, the, the headline that I actually read, which first introduced me to the story was entitled Elf Lobby Shuts Down Construction of Road. And I was like, what's an elf lobby? <laughs> and the environmental group was actually quite frustrated about that because they're like, we're not an elf lobby. We're serious conservationists and ecologists. And um, this is a protected ecological zone. And, and a lot of us don't believe in elves. And so it created this whole discussion in Iceland actually about um, elf washing. Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting because it was something that it got a lot of attention internationally, but didn't necessarily fit what most people in this group thought was what was happening. Um, but a really productive conversation came out of that where people kind of agreed, yes, we're, we're all, we all love the lava for all kinds of different reasons. And um, we should all kind of, um, use these myriad arguments to save this beautiful place. And um, so I, I would say absolutely there's there's opportunities in activism, uh, you know, writ large uh, to do so. Um, uh, I see kind of this belief. Um, you're absolutely, it's, it's found all around the world. Um, uh, it's actually really fun whenever I've like mentioned the project, somebody will say like, oh, my family's from Hawaii and we have Minahuni there who are mischievous spirits of nature who also live in the lava or like when, so I'll, I'll just say it's a belief that's very prevalent around the world. And, and I think when we can understand um, nature as alive, mm -hmm. um, it becomes so powerful because so many discourses of capitalism tell us that nature is a resource to be ex exploited um, mm -hmm. or, or, you know, this a mountain is dead and thus needs to be developed. Um, that that um, empty, you know, just idea of empty space um, is something that beckons uh, modernization or again, development. Um, there's all these languages of nature as useless or inert. And so when we're, when we instead understand nature is alive, whether um, it's through all kinds of belief systems or thinking that elves live there, it can be a really powerful 
tool aside from of course you know the the birds animals life plants that are are there so all to say I, I think of it as one of many tactics that are super important to be deployed of course with respect and um Mm -hmm. true understanding um, um, in terms of kind of the, these movements that we so desperately need to, you know, protect our, our planet. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah team up. <laughs> like, we have a common goal, why not? Um, you know, who knows if that might help, uh, you know, influence someone to see it that way, right? Like if that was like to personify or um, kind of put an image to, this thing that you're trying to save, uh, it might make it a little more personal too. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. you're murdering the planet. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Doing, this but. is absolutely like a, such a rudimentary, like oversimplification of, of it. But, um, my little nephew is a toddler and he used to like grab flowers and just kind of like pull at them. Mm -hmm. But I, I told him kind of because Raka tells, you know, says that there's, you know, little flower fairies in every single bud. And and I told my little nephew, like, oh, no, 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 there's, there's a little fairy in each flower. There's a spirit to each flower. And let's say hi to the little flower. And so from then on, he started going like, hi, instead of grabbing it and ripping at it. So it's, again, completely different thing than like a, a profound belief, cultural belief that goes back a thousand years but I think it's that simple kind of teaching like no this is life this is mm -hmm. life respected that exists here um is a really important argument that can um just cause humans to enter into a different kind of relationship with non-human nature yeah absolutely um yeah I found this I found a lot of the cinematography to be just absolutely beautiful. Uh, like there are just moments where I was just like in awe, like <laughs> just watching, like, I was like, I'd be, I've always wanted to go to Iceland, but it was like, now I'm like, okay, how do I get a ticket like tomorrow? <laughs> you know? Um, Cause I, yeah, I could have just watched like a nature documentary with, with the, you know, imagery that you had. Um, yeah, even in like some of the abandoned, like quiet places, mm -hmm. like they were, there was a beauty to them. Um, and so I just wanted to ask, like, what was, where was like your favorite place to film or like, <laughs> you know, that like really grabbed you? Uh, oh, thanks so much for, for saying that. I, I feel really lucky that I worked with a, a great cinematographer named Patrick Coleman. And we worked with a number of Icelandic cinematographers too, who, um, uh, were just yeah fabulous to work with but also like they they were showcasing their home and so that's mm -hmm. all really special um for me personally I just felt so lucky to get to run around with a camera all, all around Iceland um the west fjords were particularly just enchanting in my mind um I had an artist an artist residency there um for about six weeks and just completely fell in love with the mountains um, but also the, the south of the country uh, is geologically very young. Um, it's a particularly volcanic region. And so you can really see kind of like the forces of the earth at work. Um, you can see how the lava flows kind of stopped and were frozen in time. Um, you can see how the wind starts to carve out at them. Like, yeah, it, it's really, it's, it's so magical aside from like the actual bubbling earth of geysers and, and the geothermal water and um so it's it's a spectacular place. It really makes sense once you're there. It's like, of course, there's elves here. <laughs> <laughs> if they were going to be yeah. anywhere, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Of course they're here. So the other thing too, across the whole country, and in, in, um, probably around like September through March, you get the Northern Lights. 
And that is like the most magical experience as, as someone who hasn't grown up with Northern Lights, being able to, to see it, it's just like, yeah, lights dancing in the sky if is such a powerfully enchanting thing. So. Yeah, even just like yeah. the song about the environment where I, th I think it was like their national anthem or something where it was just like, it mentions the Northern Lights and like these beaches. And I was like, man, it's even more <laughs> that I'm missing just from this, you know, just from this song, like that they're gloating yeah. <laughs> yeah. missing their, their places. Yeah, yeah, but you should absolutely go. I highly, highly encourage it. <laughs> I hope you make it there. Yes. Kat, do you have um, a question? Yeah, how do you go about finding the people that like you go to for these stories like what is your methodology in one like finding your stories but also like finding individuals who are like so ready to speak on these things yeah that's a great question um for the seer and the unseen i i read this article and um that i mentioned before and that article quoted raka a lot and as um, in her quotes, I kind of sensed her to be like a serious activist and environmentalist, but I sensed a, um, a playfulness about herself. It's like she took her work seriously, but not herself. And I just thought this is a person I, I want to get to know. And so I, you know, I Googled, I like stalked her online, basically. And I found out that she, yeah, I know, very, very hard research. Um, but um she had written a book, uh, or rather she had translated a book that her friend Throdi and Elf had written. And I ordered that online and she sent it to me and, and sent me a little email afterwards, just like thanking me for ordering the book. And I thought like, hmm, this is an opportunity to engage in conversation. So I basically just said, you, you know, captivated my imagination. I'd like to talk to you about making a film. And that started um, a nine month long pen pal friendship, actually. And uh, yeah, I felt like I really got a chance to get to know her. And um, during that time, I was able to raise some development money to, to then go on my first shoot in Iceland. And once I met her, I felt like I was meeting like a, a long lost aunt or something, like someone I had like <laughs> known around my whole life and was like connected to. But it was just like kind of instant um, closeness and connection. Um, I feel really lucky because not everyone is like that. Um, when you know you ask them <laughs> <to laughs> about their lives, um, my main subjects in the last season, um, I found out about one of them, um, um, this man named Koi Lok, um, from actually uh, from two different sources: from a beautiful New Yorker article about the Oregon mushroom hunters, and also from the anthropological research of this phenomenal um, anthropologist named Anna Singh. And uh, I was able to get his contact information from from Anna, the, the from Professor Singh, um, and he was a little hesitant at first um, because he's a really busy man. Um, he you know hikes over ten miles a day in the woods, carrying just tons and tons of mushrooms. And and the idea of a camera crew following him, he was worried it was going to slow him down, and then he would lose money. Mm. Um, he's also really protective mm. of his mushroom patches because he called that his bank account. So. Um, mm. But we, we kind of started a, a friendship. Um, uh, uh, yeah, we got to just, we got to know each other without cameras present. And kind of through our conversations, um, he kind of started to realize that um, 
for him, he wanted, he ended up wanting to make the film because um, he spent many hours and many, many days away from his young daughter uh, to make money for her. And she didn't mm. quite understand that. She was just like, oh, daddy, where do you go? You know, she, yeah. she like, wanted time with him, but he had to make money. And so he thought that maybe this film could be a record of like what he does and how he provides for her. And so that was like, oh, that's so moving that <laughs> this can do that. Um, and then with Roger, our other main character, um, he was in very poor health and was sober for the first, or he was trying to become sober for the first time pretty much since he was a teenager. Um, and we we met him when he was in his uh, late or mid seventies. So he kind of, at first was very, he's like, he's the kind of person who was like, you know, no trespassing, like stolen bone signs all over. <laughs> yeah. He, he was like very like, do not come here kind of guy. But he's kind of saw our film as an opportunity to kind of tell his story um, because he knew that he didn't have much time. And there was a lot of um, a lot of trauma he was reckoning with um, based on his own experience in the war. So for him, um, yeah, it, it was a moment where he could kind of kind of set set to film his yeah, his his own record. Um, so I guess that's my long way of saying for me, like, it's like relationships with the subjects are the most important thing. And it's about finding, like, finding meaning for, for, a, you know, not just me to tell a story I want to tell, but, but for them to tell the story they want to tell, um, and what, what is important to them. It's, I really see it as like a collaboration. It's, um, mm -hmm. all of our work together. It's not, you know, um, it's not some sort of kind of top down kind yeah, of hierarchy observing people <laughs> in a vacuum kind of thing yeah. yeah yeah and it's it's kind of beautiful to see like how like you have this one idea this one you know goal and then for to see how it like affects others and how it can grow and like like oh, I had no idea it could have this meaning or that it could you know have this impact um and I'm always fascinated by that so that's awesome it's really nice to hear um is there like with this film is there I guess at the end of the day, what do you want people to come away with from it? Like what, like your intention, like they're going to take whatever they can, right? but like, what is your intention and what you want them to leave with? I, I think my intention with this film is, is really to understand um, uh, that you can enter into a relationship with the natural world. Um, like Raka is literally friends with nature. Um, yeah. And I think by doing so, um, you can understand the connectedness between all things. And that's to me is just um, such an important lesson when um, when thinking about everything from us, our responsibility um, in terms of how we uh, in, re relate to the natural world. Um, um, and also just like, to other humans, <laughs> when you see everything is related, um, you, you can see how your actions affect somebody else or, or affect, you know, a rock, but it turns mm -hmm. out that rock is home to beings. Um, so I, I think it makes us, uh, gives a heightened awareness about um, kind of the, the beauty and precarity of life. And so, and I just think that's an important lesson for us all to hold. Um, so, and yeah, and I hope people will start to kind of just maybe guess and wonder, just like kind of open themselves up to mystery a little bit, which is just, um, I think a, f a fun thing to do. <laughs> yeah. Especially now, like what, yeah. we need it. <laughs> we need it more than we ever. Need it. Yeah. Um, we, uh, we like to leave our listeners with 
like next steps or uh, motivations to kind of like further whatever the the film is doing. Um, and I do feel like this film ends with you know some satisfaction, you know, but just throughout, I feel like there is like a lingering sadness of just like how we got here, um, and like what you know what is next and we didn't it's not like a hundred percent win it was like you know you take what you can get kind of thing at the end um so I guess what are some ways that you uh suggest uh for like our listeners or viewers like as next steps to um further help either the environment or like even if it's just expanding the way of thinking and also to help with like just financial crises I, I know you don't have all the answers <laughs> but just no. like whatever it is that you have <laughs> you definitely know? don't have all the answers but I would absolutely I, I love that you do this um I, I think that there's so many different ways big and small to get involved in what's happening to our planet right now um you know uh the IPCCC report was just um there was a huge report that was just released last week about just the dire state of our planet that so mm -hmm. many people around the world just feel and can see when they look at the window yeah. um if their house isn't actually on on fire yeah <laughs> so it's like it's such dire times that we're in um so and there's all kinds of things little and small from um, if you're lucky and privileged enough to own a home, solar panels um, and smaller things to just understanding kind of your own carbon budget, um, what you can do uh, to reduce your own carbon footprint. Um, uh, 350.org is one organization that has really easy to understand um, kind of steps of like what you can do little and big that can fit your own kind of budget. Um, uh, but there's incredible work being done on every level, um, all kinds of local activists who are um, working towards environmental justice and, and their communities. And, and then, of course, international policy and people really lobbying uh, for, yeah, to get policy changed. Um, so I fully encourage people to look into um, how to get more involved. Yeah. The first step is just, you know, being knowledgeable, just knowing that there is a, a crisis and that we can do something like we're yeah. not going to have all the answers. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, it is, you know, these bigger companies, <laughs> nothing to do with us. Uh, but we, you know, at least to ease our conscience, I guess, well, uh, can <laughs> do something. Um, Kat, do you have any last questions or thoughts? Um, yeah, I guess it's just like, is there uh, anything in the future that you're potentially thinking about covering or are you still just really relishing in this moment um yeah I, I'm loving this moment it's really exciting it's out in the world but I'm um I'm excitedly working on a film right now about two French volcanologists named Katia and Maurice Kraft who uh, fell in love in the late 60s and roamed the planet with a camera trying to capture the most spectacular imagery of eruptions possible, um, only to die oh, in one wow. in 1991. Wow. So the film is kind of a love story, not just their love for each other, but their love for the earth. And um, in it, the film uses their own archives to kind of tell their story. And I'm, I'm like, a, I'm obsessed. You can, I don't know if you can see it here, but I have like all of these, all of their oh books. <laughs> That's oh, so wow. awesome. <laughs> so many more but it's been it's been fun and it's similar themes of like you know what it means to love the earth um uh but through kind of yeah the explosive imagery of, of volcanoes so 
That's awesome. That's oh, I love that. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm like writing things down. I'm like, all right, next time <laughs> we might have, we might call you back in to talk about that one. <laughs> um, is there any last thoughts that you have that you want our listeners to know? I know. Just thank you so much for having me. Um, if you're interested in the film, you can catch it on um, Apple TV, iTunes. Just search for Sierra and the Unseen or altabod.com. Uh, uh, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Um, and our website is theseerandtheunseen.com. So if people are interested, uh, those are some ways to, to see the film and get in touch we're going to have um, kind of a limited theatrical release to safety COVID and safety willing, but, yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, just thank you so much for, for having me on. This is a lot of fun to talk to you both and yes. very grateful for the opportunity. <laughs> yes. Thank you. And we'll include all the links to your social media and uh, we'll also dig up some of those environmental activist groups too. So that if you are listening and you want to help, if you're motivated, definitely watch this film. If you <laughs> definitely haven't just like, you will be so thankful that you took the time uh, to escape into this, um, to this world and to learn to appreciate the one that we're in uh and then you can help keep it here <laughs> help protect it and you know protect the elves that maybe we can't see <laughs> that are right in our backyard um so thank you so much sarah uh and with that being said cat don't get married <laughs> don't eat your kids 